Hi, I'm Danny, and this is episode 4 of 10601 Sabo. Okay, I'll tell you the truth now. The phenomenon of false confessions is widely known about and well documented. While it may be hard to imagine confessing to something you didn't do, it does happen. Sometimes it happens as part of a plea for attention. For example, John Mark Carr's false confession to killing John Bonet Ramsey. However, it's perhaps more common for someone to confess under the stress of police interrogation, and that's more relevant to this case. I mentioned Stefan Kieschko in episode 1, a man with learning disabilities who confessed to killing Leslie Mulseed and was eventually exonerated. The most recent season of Undisclosed, The State vs Jason Carroll, highlights the apparently false confessions of Jason Carroll to the murder of Sharon Johnson. Five of the exonerated Beatrice Six confessed to a crime that none of them were involved in. Many also consider Jesse Miss Kelly of the West Memphis Three to be an example of someone who falsely confessed during interrogation. However, it should be noted that he repeated his confession to his own attorney and the three remain legally guilty of murder. There are a number of factors that can contribute to false confessions. If a suspect, or indeed a witness, is a child or has learning disabilities, or is impaired due to use of drugs or alcohol, they are more likely to be susceptible to manipulation by police officers. Additionally, the read technique used by police officers, which is designed to catch suspects in lies and then force them to, quote, tell the truth, makes false confessions more likely too. If someone lies to the police about a detail, the officers will see this as a sign of guilt and use the lie to catch them out. But why would an innocent person lie to police? Well, it might be to protect themselves. Ed Ates, who was convicted of murdering Elnora Griffin, told police that his girlfriend picked him up on the night of the murder and drove him to her apartment. That was a lie. Ed drove his grandma's car to his girlfriend's house. So why did he lie? Well, he says it was because his mother was in the interview room and he wasn't supposed to drive his grandma's car. He was more scared of his mother than the police. And with good reason, to be fair. Ed's mother shot two of her husbands and her other son. She wasn't someone you mess about with. Another reason might be to make themselves seem more heroic or more grown up in their retelling. This seems relevant to Jennifer Jeffley. Some of the lies she tells have little obvious purpose other than to make herself sound better. She told police that she was the person who ran to the office, for example, but everyone knew it was Eva, not her. Whatever the reason, lying to the police isn't a good idea. In fact, let's be honest, speaking to the police at all without a lawyer present isn't a good idea. Police interrogation techniques aren't always ethical, and in particular I think the practice of lying to suspects should be made illegal. This is clearly something that can contribute to false confessions. If the police tell you that your DNA is on the scene, even though it isn't, then you might be scared into making up an excuse for why it's there. Again, if you've got a lawyer with you, they should stop that line of questioning, or at least they can tell you how to answer the question. Police interrogations aren't always even done correctly by their own processes. I'll give an example that many people are familiar with. The interrogation of Brendan Dassey, Stephen Avery's nephew, that was shown in Making a Murderer. During that interview, an officer visibly lost patience with Dassey and asks, Who shot her in the head? The fact that the victim, Teresa Holbach, had been shot in the head was a key piece of information that only the police, the killer and any potential witnesses would have known. The police aren't supposed to give that kind of information to suspects. Now, had Dassey volunteered that piece of information, it would be a strong indication that he knew what happened to Teresa. But he didn't volunteer it. The police told him. The techniques of Sergeant Wayman Allen, who interviewed Jennifer Jeffley, are certainly questionable. It's hard to analyse exactly what he said or what he did, as we don't have a recording or even a transcript of the interview. It appears that no recording was made. 
Alan picked Jennifer up at Green Arbor Apartments the day after the murder and took her to the police station, at which point she was interrogated at length. I'm going to go through her statements one by one, but in short, she initially gave an account in which she didn't know what happened and was at Janet Dorsey's and came back when the murder was in progress. She then tried to pin the blame on Eva and an accomplice called Frank and finally confessed to acting as a lookout and accomplice while two men named Tim, aka Slow, and Ernest Swatson broke into Catalina's apartment to steal her car keys and then killed her. She was then given her warnings by a judge and repeated her confession in a written statement. While Jennifer gave these statements, her mother, Jackie, claims that she phoned the police repeatedly and they continually said that Jennifer would be able to come home soon, but they never brought her home. I have some thoughts on Jackie's actions and involvement, but I'll come back to that. Alan's conduct was scrutinised during the trial and in Jennifer's appeal, and Jennifer isn't the only person to accuse him of wrongdoing. Another convicted murderer, Charles Raby, has also blamed Alan for his supposedly false confession. In fact, one of Raby's appeals mentions Jennifer and Alan by name. Quote, We know, however, that a Texas appellate court has since criticised the very officer in question for similar improper interrogation techniques that rendered a custodial sentence inadmissible in Jeffley v. State. Raby has only partially explained the verdict of the appeal court here, and Bob Ruff did the same on his podcast. It's true that two of Jennifer's statements were ruled inadmissible by the appeal court, but not all of them were, and crucially, her written confession was ruled admissible. The legal issue here comes down to when Jennifer was considered to be in custody, i.e. when she became a suspect in the murder, because that's the point at which she should have been given her warnings. The trial court agreed with Alan's contention that she became a suspect after her fourth oral statement to him, which is the point at which she was given her warnings by Alan and subsequently by Judge Carol Carrier. The appeal court disagreed. Here's what they said. It's a long quote, but bear with me. When it says appellant, by the way, that means Jennifer. Quote, The objective circumstances of appellant's encounter with Sergeant Allen, however, indicate that she was in custody at some point after Allen began to press her for a truthful statement. From 2.45 until 6pm, the 15-year-old 8th grader sat alone, without a parent or lawyer present or accessible, in a police station with a police officer who had been one of the crime scene investigators. The officer never informed her that she was free to leave, never informed her of her rights under the Texas Family Code, and never made arrangements for her to return home, as promised. Instead, the officer, who believed she had lied in her first statement, confronted appellant for three hours about discrepancies in her statements, until she gave a statement inculpating herself in the murder. Considering the naturally coercive nature of a police station, the authority entrusted a police officer, and the nature of Alan's interrogation, a reasonable 15-year-old would believe her freedom of movement had been significantly restricted to the extent associated with a formal arrest soon after she gave her second oral statement. Because the record does not support the trial court's conclusion that appellant's third and fourth oral statements were not the result of custodial interrogation, the trial court erred in holding otherwise." End quote. So the appeal court said that Jennifer was in custody after Alan made it clear he didn't believe her and began pushing her for a truthful statement. That was after her second oral statement to him, so the appeal court ruled that her subsequent third and fourth oral statements were the result of interrogation, and thus states, quote, Appellant's third and fourth oral custodial statements, however, were obtained without a magistrate's warning and were not electronically recorded in violation of section 51.095 of the Family Code. Therefore, the statements were inadmissible under Article 38.23 of the Code of Criminal Procedure. Accordingly, the trial court erred in refusing to suppress these oral statements." End quote. So yes, two of Jennifer's statements as taken by Alan were ruled inadmissible on appeal, but that isn't the whole story. 
Jennifer also gave a second written statement and, quote, Appellant's second written statement was also the result of custodial interrogation, but it was obtained in accordance with section 51.095 of the Family Code. Therefore, the trial court did not err in denying appellant's motion to suppress the statement, end quote. In layperson's terms, Jennifer's second written statement was admissible because she had been appropriately warned. In addition to that, the appeal court ruled that the error was reversible and not enough to invalidate her conviction. Quote, From Alan's testimony about appellant's oral statements, the jury could easily have perceived appellant as conniving and untruthful, willing to lie to protect her own self-interest. Yet, in light of appellant's second written statement and other testimony, the jury probably did not place a great deal of weight on the oral statements as evidence of appellant's guilt. Given the strict requirements upon law enforcement officers in the family code regarding interrogation of juveniles, it is unlikely that declaring the admission of the oral statements harmless would encourage the state to repeat the error with impunity. Accordingly, we find the record establishes beyond a reasonable doubt that the admission of appellant's third and fourth oral statements did not contribute to her conviction. End quote. Now, I have to disagree with some of the appeal court's reasoning here. I'm not a lawyer, and I don't pretend to be. But they say here that declaring the admission of these oral statements harmless is unlikely to encourage the state to repeat this error. I don't see how that can be true. If the state can get away with obtaining these statements improperly and entering them into the trial, then clearly that seems like a green light for them to repeat the error. I would generally agree that these particular statements probably didn't contribute to her conviction, but it does seem like a concerning precedent to set. Anyway, the appeal court's verdict was presented on Bob Ruff's podcast as Jennifer's confessions being ruled inadmissible, but the appeal court saying that there was enough evidence other than her confessions to convict her. It would be more accurate to say that one of Jennifer's confessions was ruled inadmissible, but the appeal court stated that there was enough evidence in her second written confession from other witness testimony and her fingerprint on the glass door to convict her anyway. Whether or not Alan's actions were ethical isn't the legal question here. I don't think they were ethical at all. They were wrong. He was wrong. But what does that mean in practice, legally? Not a whole lot. The lack of an appropriate adult being present during Jennifer's confessions was made an issue of at trial and during her appeal. I'll put my cards on the table again. No one should give a statement to the police without a lawyer present. I actually think the law should be that a minor cannot give a statement to police without a parent, guardian or lawyer present. But that isn't the law. From reading the case file, it seems that Jennifer didn't actually want her mother present. She listed her uncle Dave, a twice convicted burglar, and her wannabe daddy, Craig Peters, as her next of kin, ahead of her mother Jackie. In fact, she actually listed Craig as her stepfather. The case file says, quote, Alan advised Jennifer that we could get her mother up to the office along with Eva and the maintenance man to see if we could straighten this out, end quote. And Jennifer did not take up this offer. When Jackie phoned the office, Jennifer, quote, spoke briefly with her. Bear in mind that Jennifer was 15, a perfect age for making stupid decisions. Also, being arrested is an extremely stressful situation. Even giving a witness statement is extremely stressful, presumably more so if you know that you were actually involved in the crime. No one is at their best in these stressful situations. But if it was your child who had been taken by the police to give this statement, if it was your child who was making the decision to give a statement without an adult present, wouldn't you go down to the station and demand to be present anyway? Jackie didn't. I'm sure she was distressed, but she had a responsibility to Jennifer, who is in a far worse situation than her, to try and be there for her. Jackie said that she didn't go down to the station because she didn't know which station they were at. So why didn't she drive to the nearest station and try and find out where they were? We know that Jackie knew where the station was. She went there on the day of the murder to report Jennifer as a runaway, and she was actually at the station when Jennifer was taken in to give her first written statement. 
Don't let your kids talk to the police alone. It's that simple and it's very important. Whether they're guilty or innocent, Brendan Dassey, Jesse Miss Kelly and Jennifer Jeffley have a few things in common. They were minors, their parents allowed them to be interviewed alone, they all confessed and none of them got a plea deal. I absolutely agree that the police taking Jennifer for such a long time was an unethical way to act and not notifying Jackie when she became a suspect was unethical and illegal. But I'm also scrutinising Jackie's actions because no one else has and because I believe she let Jennifer down repeatedly. When I spoke to Jennifer's ex-wife, Nika, she said that Jennifer felt that her mother had abandoned her at the police station. When Jackie was interviewed by Bob Ruff, he formed a timeline of Jennifer's interviews and one of Jackie's phone calls based on comparing her interview and Sergeant Allen's trial testimony. Bob said that Allen never mentioned Jackie calling, and while it's true that he didn't mention it at trial, he did mention it in the case file. Crucially, Jackie said that when she phoned, Jennifer had just had a hamburger, which places that phone call just after Jennifer's first confession. At that point, Jennifer was clearly a suspect, and according to the family code, he should have informed Jackie of this. This was framed as particularly unethical conduct, and I agree. And ultimately, the appeal court criticised Alan for not reading Jennifer her warnings and notifying Jackie even before the first confession. However, Bob said that Jackie wasn't in court for Alan's testimony and had never read the trial transcripts, with the implication being that she couldn't have tailored her version of events around what Alan said. But when I found Jennifer's ex, Nika, on Facebook, she had already posted excerpts from the trial transcripts. I asked her how she had them, and she said that she got them from Jennifer, who got them from her lawyer. And that meant that the family, including Jackie, had access to them too. To be clear, I don't think it's likely that Jackie went to the effort of reading Alan's trial testimony and then tailored her interview with Bob to fit what Alan said and paint him in the worst possible light. But, in the interest of accuracy, I wanted to put out there that Jackie could well have read his testimony. Had Jackie attended the police station and demanded to speak to the officers, I don't believe that Jennifer would have given her half-hearted confessions. For those who believe Jennifer was involved, as I do, it's broadly a good thing that she confessed. But had Jackie acted as a parent should, Jennifer could have had a lawyer present and we might have ended up with a confession which named the two accomplices rather than leaving Jennifer holding the bag alone. She would likely have got a more lenient sentence through a deal to testify against the killers and they would have faced justice for killing Catalina. I'm now going to go through every statement Jennifer made to the police. They don't begin as confessions and I think we can broadly speaking separate Jennifer's statements and actions at the time and since into three categories, denial, non-denial and confession. The statements given at the time are the most important, but the statements made since by her and others are useful secondary information. There's an important timeline of the statements and I'll set that out now. Firstly there was Jennifer's very brief statement to Officer Pika at the scene. Next there was an oral interview with Detective Swainson, also at the scene. Jennifer then went to the police station, gave an oral statement at 2.49pm that was written down by Sergeant Boyd Smith and signed by Jennifer. That evening, still on the day of the murder, Swainson and Alan returned to Green Arbor Apartments hoping to speak to Youngster and KD. They knocked on Jackie's door hoping to find Jennifer and thus the brothers, but Jackie didn't know where Jennifer was. She said she thought she might be at Eva's, so the officers went towards Eva's and found Jennifer on the way. They took another oral statement from her, then went into Eva's apartment and checked her clothes. The next day, the 30th, they went back to Green Arbor, picked up Jennifer, then they picked up Katie and Youngster from their homes and went to the police station. Jennifer then gave four evolving statements to Sergeant Allen, 
ultimately building up to her confessing to involvement in the murder. She was then given her warnings by a judge and gave a further statement confirming her involvement. Those are the most important statements. There was also a confirmation of her confession a few weeks later in the presence of her lawyer and two statements from Jackie in 2009 and 2014 which don't claim that Jennifer was innocent. Jennifer was also on Crime Watch Daily in 2017 and in that program she made some claims that she never made at the time. Finally, during my conversations with Jennifer's ex-wife Nika, I asked Nika if Jennifer claimed to be innocent and her answer shocked me. You'll hear it in a future episode. The first statement that Jennifer gave at the scene to Officer Pika was very brief and the case file contains a four-line paraphrase of what she said. Quote, Witness Jennifer Jeffley stated that she stays above the complainant and that approximately 09.20 hours she heard the complainant yell for help. The witness went to the complainant's door and started knocking on the complainant's door. The witness told officer that she then went to the office, got the manager. End quote. In this statement, she told the officer that she had heard Catalina yell for help, so she ran to the office for help. As I've stated repeatedly, this isn't true. Eva ran to the office. Everyone knew Eva ran to the office. So it's very strange that Jennifer apparently lied about something that was so easily falsifiable. One possibility I've considered is that Eva actually gave this statement and Officer Peacock wrote down the wrong name, but I think that's unlikely. The time is also wrong. Catalina died between 9.35 and 9.40, so Jennifer is early. This is understandable on an emotional day, but also potentially indicative that she didn't actually hear the yells for help, or she wasn't in a position where she could look at a clock and check the time. Jennifer's first oral interview, the second statement she gave, was given at the scene to Officer Roy Swainson. Before getting into what Jennifer said, he wrote down, Jennifer Jeffley gave a date of birth of, and then he wrote her date of birth, which is redacted, although we know it's September the 2nd. But in brackets after the redaction, he wrote, actually 81, as if he was correcting the year that he'd written down. He wrote this date of birth in a different way to the way he wrote the others, specifying that Jennifer gave a date of birth of that date, whereas for the others he just wrote date of birth. To me this reads as if he's documenting that Jennifer gave the wrong date of birth, because he wrote it in a different way, and also if he'd written it down wrong, surely he would have just edited it rather than writing actually 81. We also know that Jennifer had been lying to Eva and saying that she was 18, so presumably the date Jennifer gave the officer was September the 2nd, 1978. So we're two from two. Both the first two statements Jennifer made to the officers appear to contain immediate and fairly obvious lies. In this statement, Jennifer opens by mentioning the 8.45am page from Craig, but when Swainson asked to see it, she says she's deleted it. I've never owned a pager, but people who did have told me this wasn't unusual. They didn't have a lot of space, apparently. Unfortunately for Jennifer, it does mean she can't verify her story. This statement largely concentrates on her whereabouts and who else was present. It reads, quote, Jen initially indicated that two boys were in the apartment when she left this morning to use a phone, but she did not indicate their identity. Swainson had just completed the interview with Eva and was aware that the one male named Youngster was Jen's boyfriend, end quote. It doesn't say that she refused to identify the brothers, but the police have clearly got her number. They know she knows Youngster very well and that she probably knows KD. Then Jennifer says something interesting. Quote, Jen indicated that after returning from using a phone at Janet's place, she was outside when Eva was calling into the apartment of the complainant. End quote. But at the time when Eva was calling into the apartment, Eva and KD both say that Jennifer wasn't there. Youngster says she was there and then she left, so he has it backwards from Jen. So at this point, the cops have someone who's lied to them twice, can't confirm her story of her whereabouts, 
didn't tell them her boyfriend's name and told them she was outside with Eva during the murder after they had spoken to Eva and she didn't say that. People have asked how 15 year old Jennifer even became a suspect. Well, here's how. She lied to police repeatedly at the scene of a murder. Jennifer's next statement was given at the police station to Sergeant Boyd Smith. I'll go through it now and as it's the statement which appears to be closest to her actual words, I'll primarily quote from that. But as I do, I'll compare it to her fourth statement given at the complex on Tuesday evening and her fifth and sixth statements given to Alan the day afterwards. In the third statement to Boyd Smith, she does identify Youngster as her boyfriend and says, quote, I know his first name is Pharrell. He told me what his last name is, but I can't remember what it is, end quote. Well, that's an improvement. It's still not great. She then says, quote, I don't know what his little brother's name is. This is only the third time I ever saw him. He has a nickname. I don't remember what it is, but it starts with an M, end quote. As I've mentioned before, I'm a teacher, but you don't need to be a teacher to know that KD does not start with an M. These statements really feel like Jennifer is being very evasive and difficult, but I'll cut her the same slack that I've cut other people. It was an emotional day, events are moving fast. I still feel like she could probably have done better than starts with an M. Jennifer says that Youngster woke her at 8.20am and said she had a page, while Youngster says that Jennifer woke him getting out of bed. This isn't that significant a discrepancy, but it's worth mentioning. The page was from Craig Peters, and I'll read Jennifer's description of him and her response to him. Quote, I know that his number is to a black man named Craig Peters. Craig is a friend of my family, but he mostly talks to my mother. When I saw who was paging me, I just laid back down and went to sleep. At about 8.45am, my pager went off again. It was Craig again. I figured that he wanted to talk to my mother, so I decided to go call him, end quote. As I always do, I've tried to read exactly from the case file, and I assume there's a typo there, and it should read this number, not his number. In her fifth statement, Jennifer offers evidence to back up this page. Quote, Jennifer stated she had shown the officer her pager yesterday with Craig's number in it, end quote. However, as I've mentioned, we know the officer she spoke to yesterday said she had deleted the page. I'm going to give a trigger warning here for a brief discussion of child sexual abuse. Given what we know about Craig Peters, this description doesn't make sense. Jennifer later describes Craig as her stepfather, which also appears to be inaccurate, and it doesn't fit with the description of him here as a friend of the family. Jennifer also says, quote, he mostly talks to my mother. Bear in mind that Jennifer's mother had told police she believed Craig was sexually abusing Jennifer. He had been indicted and was awaiting trial for the offence. Why on earth would he be talking to Jackie? It's also very questionable conduct at best to be paging the girl he's awaiting trial for allegedly sexually abusing. To me, it seems like Jennifer is trying to distance herself from Craig here, likely to protect him and herself. To be clear, in this regard, Jennifer had no reason to protect herself. She'd done nothing wrong in regard to Craig, whether the charges were true or not. But the feeling of shame that child sexual abuse victims often feel does explain why she would want to distance herself from him. She may have felt that she had done something wrong. She may also have been trying to protect Craig because she knew that he wasn't really meant to be contacting her. The subsequent description of him as her wannabe daddy and stepfather is, in my view, an extension of this. Jennifer was trying to position Craig as her mother's friend or partner, not as a man who was inappropriately involved with her. I'll reiterate here that the charges against Craig were dropped, so he is legally presumed innocent, regardless of my feelings about him contacting Jennifer. Jennifer then described her movements, and I'm briefly going to talk about something called statement analysis before I get into that. 
Statement analysis is a method of looking at what someone says to determine whether they're being truthful. Now, I'm not trained in statement analysis, and I'm glad I'm not. I consider it pseudoscientific nonsense, which is rightly not admissible in US or UK courts. It's fortune telling for people with a criminology degree. The majority of studies looking at the success or failure rate of statement analysis have had no outside criteria to determine whether the subject was in fact telling the truth. It was developed as a way to tell whether child sexual abuse victims were telling the truth, which is problematic in itself. We should start from the premise of assuming victims are being truthful. Statement analysis has a high failure rate in laboratory conditions, so it seems logical to conclude that it would have an even higher failure rate in practical conditions. Avinoam Sapir is the creator of scientific content analysis, one of the techniques used in statement analysis. He said that it is, quote, almost impossible for a guilty person to say that they didn't do something. That is ridiculous. Once again, I'm a teacher. Some of you will be teachers, some of you will be parents. Believe me when I tell you it is easy for someone to look you dead in the eye and say, I didn't do it, when you know full well that they did. This ludicrous assertion demonstrates some of the problems with statement analysis. As you can tell, I'm kind of on the fence here. But with that said, this technique is used by the FBI, including retired agent Jim Clemente, who appeared on Bob Ruff's podcast to help profile the crime scene and the potential suspect in this case. Bob often says that describing one's movements while giving a statement is an indicator of truth. Again, that strikes me as a bizarre assertion, but let's take it at face value. If true, then Jennifer's description of her movements should be seen as a sign she's telling the truth. And what does Jennifer do here and consistently throughout her statements? She describes her movements. It's worth remembering that applying the methods used by the Advocates of Innocence consistently would in fact indicate truthfulness in significant parts of Jennifer's statements, including her confessions. So Jennifer says she got up, brushed her teeth and washed her face. She continues, quote, I left to go use the phone. As I walked down the stairs, I saw the lady who lives downstairs from Eva. She is an elderly Hispanic woman. She was outside standing near her back fence. It looked like she was doing something to her plants. I said, good morning. She answered, good morning back to me, end quote. This isn't suspicious in itself, but bear in mind this makes Jennifer the last known person to see Catalina alive. For those who are still wondering how Jennifer became a suspect in a brutal murder, here's another reason. Jennifer also mentions this interaction in her fifth statement. She continues, quote, I walked over to Janet Dorsey's apartment to use the phone. She lives in apartments and she has the only phone I know about, end quote. I'm going to highlight this because some of my listeners would never forgive me if I didn't. Catalina was downstairs. Jennifer knew she was awake and spoke to her, and she had a phone. Catalina was widely known to be friendly and helpful. Why didn't Jennifer ask to use her phone? Or, in fact, did Jennifer ask to use her phone and become angry when Catalina said no? I don't personally consider that likely, and Jennifer indicates she only knew there was a phone at Janet's. The way this statement is phrased is interesting, quote, the only phone I know about. Did Sergeant Allen ask her why she didn't use Kathleen's phone, and she said she didn't know about it? Sadly, we don't know as we don't have a transcript or recording, but we do know Kathleen had a phone. It's worth bearing in mind, but as mentioned, I think there's a clear enough possible explanation for Jennifer not asking. She either didn't know Kathleen had a phone, didn't know her well enough to ask, or she just wanted to go to Janet's as she usually did. She continues, quote, I knocked and just walked on in. I always knock and walk in because she is like my second mother. Janet was laying in the bed. She asked who it was and I told her. I told her I came to use the phone, end quote. This is confirmed by Janet Dorsey, quote, 
Dorsey stated Jennifer had came over that morning and used the phone and called her friend and Jennifer left, end quote. Now, to be clear, I believe Jennifer and Janet. I think she went there and phoned Craig. But I will just mention that Janet has a clear motive to lie for Jennifer, who describes her as her second mother. Janet has a not insignificant criminal record, indicating a history of theft, fraud and crack possession. But as I say, I think she's telling the truth here. If she'd been lying for Jen, I think she'd have said she was there for longer to alibi her during the murder. Jennifer then says, quote, I called Craig. He has caller ID and he asked me where I was at. I told him we talked for about five minutes. He told me he was supposed to cook dinner for my mother and my grandmother. Then we talked a few minutes about the problems I was having with my mother, end quote. In her fifth statement, she describes this conversation similarly, but not quite the same. Quote, Jennifer stated Craig talked with her about her situation at home and told her she should go back home. Jennifer was staying at Eva's apartment because her mother and her had a problem over the rules at her mother's, end quote. There are some major red flags here for me. I'll give a trigger warning again for discussion of child sexual abuse. Put simply, I do not believe that Craig was making dinner for the mother and grandmother of the girl he was awaiting trial for sexually abusing. I just don't. Craig didn't mention this dinner to Bob Ruff in his interview. I don't know if this is significant in the murder, I think it probably isn't, but I have to mention it. I'm going to get into the Craig Peters rabbit hole in a future episode. Jen then says she called the phone company to try and sort out Eva's phone, in her fifth statement specifically saying she wanted to get it turned on in her name, which is odd because she hadn't been staying there that long. Maybe she was fed up of having to go over to Janet's to make phone calls. Craig calls back, they talk a bit more, and then Jen leaves. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Quote, I walked back towards Eva's apartment. As I walked up, I saw Eva on the step at the bottom to the steps in front of her apartment. She was talking to the elderly Hispanic lady who lives downstairs from her. She was acting scared and she was saying, are you okay? I couldn't see the lady, but someone was answering Eva from inside the apartment. The person was saying, yeah, I'm okay. I just fell and hit my head. Eva asked her if she wanted her to go call the police. The voice answered back, no, 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 I'm okay, I just hit my head. The voice didn't sound right. You could tell it was an imitation. It was obvious that it was someone trying to imitate an elderly woman. The voice was high-pitched, but it was husky, rough and ragged. It sounded like someone with a low voice talking in a high voice. Eva told me that she knows her neighbour and that the voice did not sound like hers. I had heard her say good morning and the voice I was hearing was way different from the voice I had heard from the woman earlier. Eva told me that something was wrong and I agreed and told her to go call the police. Jennifer's fourth and fifth statements recount these events in the same way. But Eva and KD both agree that Jennifer wasn't there at this point. Youngster says she was but then left, which contradicts everyone else. I suspect that when Jennifer spoke to Youngster alone later, as mentioned by KD, they discussed what happened. Youngster then worked Jennifer going to Janet's into his statement and Jennifer worked the interaction with the fake voice into hers. Also, Jennifer says it was her who told Eva to call the police. No one else mentions this, and Jennifer only mentions it in one statement. Eva told police that wasn't true. She ran to the office because she was concerned about Catalina, not because Jennifer told her to. Jen then says that when Eva ran to the office, she started banging on Catalina's door, and then Red Rock and Houston show up. There are two notable absentees from her story in every version, Katie and Youngster. She doesn't mention them being there, she doesn't say they went upstairs, she just doesn't mention them. This is very strange, and frankly it suggests that she wasn't really there at that point. The interaction with Red Rock and Housen definitely happened, but both of their statements, 
and Jean Sage's statement make it clear the interaction happened before the murder, not afterwards. Jen continues, quote, Then Eva came back. She told me that she had told the apartment manager to call the police. She said they acted like they didn't know what was going on, and it took her a while to get them to call. End quote. Big red flag again here. Everyone else says that Eva was in the office very briefly. No one says it was a while to get them to call. And Jen says Eva turned up on her own. Everyone else says Eva turned up at the same time as Pam Wiley. Again, without a transcript it's difficult to know, but it seems like Jennifer is extending the time frame in order to have her banging on the door and talking to Red Rock and Housen after the murder took place, not before. Quote, I was standing at the front of the steps with Eva when either the blonde haired manager or the maintenance man came. This is bizarre. Can Jennifer not tell the difference between the blonde manager, Pam Wiley, and the maintenance man, Keith Truesdale? It's almost as if she wasn't actually standing there, but was just emerging from somewhere when they turned up. There's also a difference here in her fifth statement, in which she says Eva turned up with the manager and the maintenance man. Now that statement was paraphrased, and again, we can be charitable about slight differences, but it's worth mentioning. But what we can't be so charitable about is what Eva said that Jennifer said to her. Quote, Jennifer was whispering to me, trying to get me to tell the police that she was there when I was asking the old lady if she was okay. I do not know why she would want me to lie about that. Now, in addition to Jennifer's lies to the police, we have another witness telling the police that Jennifer told her to lie to them. Jen then says, quote, The maintenance man jumped over the Hispanic lady's patio fence. End quote. Well, that was a quick decision. Jennifer has now settled on it being Keith, not Pam, and he did indeed go over the fence. But she's still got something wrong. Eva turned up with Pam and Lavonna. Lavonna then went back to the office and ran into Keith and Luis Perez, who went to the apartment. Once again, I'll be fair to Jennifer here, as I have been to everyone. It's an emotional day, lots going on, mistakes happen. But just as I said about Youngster in particular, sometimes these inconsistencies might be more than that. Quote, I could hear the phone ringing inside the lady's apartment. Now, I'm not saying this didn't happen, but no one else mentions it. It's also worth noting that Keith and Pam struggled to find the phone. It would have been easier for them to find if it was ringing. Quote, I lifted myself up on the patio fence and I could see the lady laying on the floor in front of her front door. Houston, we have another problem. I can't say for sure, as for obvious reasons I haven't tested this, but I'm pretty confident that from that angle you couldn't see Kathleen's body. And the police agreed. Quote, This is impossible from anywhere on the patio. The sliding glass door has vertical blinds on it from the inside three quarters of the way. The open doorway views into the living room area in the direction of the kitchen. The body is out of sight from this vantage point. This sergeant could not see the body of the complainant from the patio while at the scene of the murder. Jen continues. Then the blonde haired lady said, see if she's alive. I decided to go in to check on her. I went over the fence. I saw that the patio screen was laying in the middle of the lady's patio area. I walked in the open back door and up to the lady. I could see there was a broken orange red looking flower pot. There was dirt in front of the lady. I saw a piece of the broken pot laying on her shoulder near her neck. I think she was on her side. I moved the piece of broken pot away from her neck so I could check her pulse. There was blood everywhere. I couldn't feel a pulse. I started to get real nervous because there was too much blood for me. I got up and left. I went back over the patio fence. End quote. In her fourth and fifth statement, Jennifer gives a similar account. And again, this is bizarre. Pam apparently said to check if she's alive. 
which Pam never mentions by the way, and in fact says she checked Catalina's body herself. But Jennifer doesn't say where Pam was at the time, but we know from every other statement that Keith jumped the fence and opened the front door and Pam went in. So why would Jennifer go over the fence and not through the front door? And then there's the moving the piece of pottery off Catalina's neck. Given that no one saw Jennifer touching Catalina's body, how can we possibly believe that to be true? There's also an inconsistency in what Eva told police that Jennifer said. Quote, when I got back to the apartment, Jennifer and youngster and his brother were standing right there. She told me then that she had jumped over the fence to the patio to check on the lady. And when she did this, Jennifer said that the lady looked dead and there was blood all over the place. She said that she checked to see if the lady had a pulse and she said that the lady was dead. Obviously this is second hand coming from Eva, but according to her, Jennifer said she went over the fence before Keith. What's the purpose of this apparent lie from Jennifer? It could be to make herself seem more heroic and involved in the events. It could also be to explain away why her DNA or fingerprints might be on the murder weapon and the body of the victim. Now, she was only 15, so that would be quite a criminally sophisticated thing to do. Remember, this is before CSI was a hit TV show. With that said, we know two of Jennifer's uncles had a criminal past, that her sister's boyfriend Stephen Burks was a career criminal, and her boyfriend and his brother were also criminals. So maybe she knew she'd have to explain those things. Jennifer continues, quote, when I got over the fence I saw a youngster. He told me that an ambulance was on the way, end quote. Youngster doesn't mention this. According to him, he was there, Jennifer was there, and then she left. No one mentions seeing her going over the fence, either going over into the apartment or leaving the apartment and going back over the fence. Quote, I went around to the front door and both of the managers had gone in the front door with the maintenance man. Eva was standing at the front door. I went in. I told them to cover her up. The one with the blonde hair covered her up with a bedspread she got off a bed in the apartment. End quote. Finally, Jennifer's statements begin to match what other people say. She says she went in through the front door and that Eva was also there and she says she told Pam to cover up the body. And Pam did say that someone told her to cover up the body. Quote, I saw the woman's purse on the floor by her leg. It was closed. It was leaning up against the wall, sort of. Someone had kicked it while I was there. That's what made me notice it. I picked it up and put it in a chair at the table. End quote. And here we are again with Jennifer touching evidence. Please, if you are ever at a murder scene, don't touch the evidence. No one else mentions Jennifer picking up a purse. Remember, UK listeners, a purse is a handbag. And no one else mentions it being moved. It looks like, once again, Jennifer is trying to explain away any DNA or fingerprints at the scene. I'm not saying that's what she was definitely doing, but that's what it looks like. Jennifer then mentions the nurse, Doris Gibson, coming to give CPR. She also says that, quote, the blonde-haired manager said that the woman did have a pulse, end quote. This would seem to indicate that Pam did feel a faint pulse, which her own statements were unclear on. Jennifer concludes her third statement by saying, quote, The only other person I saw was a white male getting in his truck. He didn't come out of our apartments. He had come off the side of the street that people park on when they live in Sabo apartments. Sabo apartments are across the street from our apartments. He looked like he was just normal, not in a hurry or nervous. It was a pickup truck. I don't remember what kind or what colour it was. He drove off normally. This is the only time Jennifer mentions this man. Now, we don't have a recording, but this doesn't sound to me like it came out of nowhere. I think Boyd Smith asked her if she'd seen anyone else. No one else mentions this man, and the only person who spoke to police saying he was driving was Zaragoza Gaza. But he's not a white male. 
He was already in his truck, not getting into it. He says he was there an hour before Jennifer left the apartment, and he didn't live in Savo Apartments, he lived in Green Arbor. He was driving in the car park. Clearly, she didn't see Zaragoza, and judging from her description, I don't think this man has any relevance to the case. Catalina was still alive when he drove off, and he wasn't acting strangely. Boyd Smith doesn't mention finding anything suspicious in Jennifer's statements, but when Alan and Swainson compare her statements with those of Eva and Keith, they definitely do. And it's clear they suspect Katie and Youngster too, especially Youngster. So when they pick Jennifer up on Wednesday, and she gives her fifth statement, Alan hits her with this. Quote, Alan pointed out to Jennifer that the maintenance man's statement and Eva's statement do not indicate that she went inside with the maintenance man. Jennifer stated Eva saw me go over the fence. Alan advised Jennifer that's not what her statement says. Alan pointed out the discrepancies in her statement versus Eva, the maintenance man and including Youngster. Jennifer stated she did not see Youngster until later when he told her an ambulance was coming. Alan advised Jennifer that that was not what he was saying. Alan advised Jennifer that Eva told investigators that she was not present when she was first talking with the elderly female and that she had whispered to Eva to tell the police she was. Jennifer stated that she and Eva were talking when she was washing her hands in the apartment. Eva told her that their statements had to coincide and for her to stick to her statement and not let the police trick her or turn things around. Alan advised Jennifer that Eva told officers she wanted to know what Eva was telling investigators at the police station. Jennifer stated, okay, I'll tell you the truth, and she started her story again. End quote. And I presume there's another typo at the end there. It should read, Alan advised Jennifer that Eva told officers she wanted to know what Jennifer was telling investigators. After Jennifer says she'll tell them the truth, her statements begin to change, and they change quickly. I wanted to look at all of Jennifer's statements in one episode, but that girl could talk. There's just too many of them to go through. For that reason, I'll do a part two of this episode, looking at the rest of the statements, and we'll leave it here for today. After just one more thing. On Tuesday night, quote, Alan asked Jeffrey how she cut her hand. Jeffrey has a superficial type cut on the inside of the right palm and a minor cut to the back of the hand near her thumb. Jeffrey stated she was not sure. Jeffrey stated she did not notice the cut until she was washing her hands in Eva's apartment because she felt it stinging. Jeffrey stated she had dirt on her hands and she was washing the dirt off when she discovered the cut. End quote. So by Tuesday night, the evening of the day of the murder, we have Jennifer with two cuts on her hands dirt on her hands, lying about various details, failing to confirm her alibi, being the last known person to see Kathleen alive and failing to provide the details of Youngster and KD to police. If anyone is still unsure how Jennifer became a suspect, or even blaming Eva because she told police Jennifer told her to lie, let's straighten that out. Jennifer became a suspect all on her own. Thanks for listening to this episode of 10601 Sabo. If you want to send me any feedback, email danny10601 at outlook.com. And remember, you can access all the case files at jenniferjeffleycase.wordpress.com.